Good evening. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study on the life of Christ. And we are going to complete the Sermon on the Mount today. And it's great timing because next Wednesday will be our business meeting. There is no Bible study. You are, of course, those here, welcome to join us, whether you are a member or not. If you'd like to get an idea of how the church operates and kind of the direction we're going, you are always welcome to be a spectator. All members are encouraged to join us because, of course, we'll have some matters to vote on and going over the financials of the last quarter. We'd love for you guys to see that as well. We're in Matthew chapter 7, looking at verse 1. The Bible begins by stating in this text, Judge not that ye be not judged. Now, as in many cases, there are a lot of theologies, many philosophies that are taken from just one verse. That essentially, if you want to use the Bible to teach what you believe, you could probably do that if you go to one verse and don't compare that verse to other portions of Scripture. Don't ask yourself, what does that one particular verse say? And don't try to Um, look at the verses around it, you could probably get the Bible to say almost anything that you'd like. It's called taking something out of context. This verse might be one of the most abused uh, verses in all of the Bible. Not the only one. One of the top ones. Judge not, lest ye be judged. In fact, just that verse, judge not. Don't even look at the rest of the verse. Don't judge me. The Bible says to judge not. Now, That is not the only verse that deals with judgment. That is not the only verse in this chapter that talks about judgment. In fact, it's not the only verse in this direct context because verse 2 continues the thought. We're going to look at the whole thought of Matthew chapter 7 regarding judgment today. But before we do, I would like you to understand that verse 1 is not a command to not judge it's a command, it's, it, you might say more so, a warning that if you do judge, you will be judged in the manner with which you judge others. If you have a habit of judging other people's physical appearance, expect that they will return the favor. If you have a habit of judging people's hairstyles, they will do the same for you. If you have a habit of judging people's clothing, they will do the same for you. If you have a habit of judging people's character they will do the same for you. Now, personally, I think that there must be judgment. Judgment is essentially the verbal affirmment, the verbal proclamation of your belief regarding someone else. Now, the truth is, we judge people all the time. People judge us all the time. It's a a product of humanity. You're not going to live in this world and not be judged by people. You're not going to live around people and not judge them. At some point, make a public statement regarding them. You say, Pastor Russ, I would never do that. Have you ever told someone you like their outfit? Well, yes, I've done that. Then you've judged them. Well, that's not judgment. Yes, it is. It's just a positive judgment. It's judgment nonetheless. Have you ever told someone that you love their parenting style? Yes, I have. Then you've judged them. Have you ever stated to someone, your child is so well-behaved? Yes, I have. Then you've judged their child. You see, we've all done it. We all do it. And people do it to us. It's not that we, if we're honest, it's not that we're so against judgment. We're just against negative judgment. We're against judgment that would in any way reflect poorly on us. We love to hear, you're such a great parent. We're not so thrilled to hear, you messed up, mom. You messed up, dad. Your child's a a wreck. Your child's causing havoc. No one wants to hear that. How dare you judge me? Well, what if I said, great job, mom? Oh, thank you for that, right? So (laughs) we just need to understand that the the idea of judgment isn't anti-Bible. Christ judged people all the time. Well, that's because he's God. He's the great judge. We're also told to judge others. No, we're not. We're told to right here, judge not. Okay, except if you go a little further, you're going to find in verse 15, beware of false prophets 
which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruit. Okay, what does that mean? It means make a judgment call on the people you allow to lead you and to teach you. And you will know the kind of people that should lead you and teach you by their actions. Also, by the way, another verse that is taken out of context, this one right here, verse 15 and on. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So in the same chapter, we're told you should make a judgment call on the people that lead you. I mean, doesn't that make sense? When you vote in a political leader, shouldn't you make a judgment call before voting for them? It shouldn't just be eeny, meeny, miny, mo, spin the wheel, I pick this one. You're making a judgment call. Should you not make a judgment call on the school you bring your children to, on the teachers you allow to raise your children, on the coaches you allow to direct your children on the field and on the court? We are making judgment calls all the time. In fact, I would say that's good parenting. Make judgment calls on the people you allow around your children. So verse 1 is not saying don't judge ever. Verse 1 is saying be cautious. Because the way you judge is the way you'll be judged. The things that you think are important and that you call out on other people are the very things they will return back to you. You know, I've noticed that to be the case in my life. I am not saying that is going to be perfectly played out in every relationship with every person. But generally speaking, the things that you make a big deal are the things that people will say, well, how are you doing in that area? You know what? I do not, I I can't think of really ever um, calling out people on their, when, uh, on their dress, occasionally I'll say, oh, that, that outfit looks great on you, or that, that color looks really good on you, or to the guys, man, I love those shoes, or whatever. I'll, I'll say that occasionally. I don't make a big deal out of people, how they dress. That's an occasional statement I will make. And you know what? People don't do that to me either, because that's, I, I, in, in the relationships I have had, I don't make it a topic of conversation. I don't make a big deal out of, of, of people's hairstyles, and they don't make a big deal out of mine. The things that I do discuss, character choices, are the ones I believe people are looking at me on. That's what they're looking at. You know, all right, so Pastor Russ makes a big deal about character and about choices. How is Pastor Russ's character? What are the choices he is making? And by the way, that is what I want to be judged on. I'm not offended by someone judging my character. I'm not offended by someone judging my choices. You must, you should do that. And I will do the same. Now, Just because someone's making bad choices doesn't mean you necessarily have to call them out on it. The book of Proverbs tells us there are times where you should call out a fool according to their folly. Why? Because if you don't, they'll think that they're right all the time. So someone's got to correct them occasionally. But then the very next verse in that chapter tells us don't call out a fool according to their folly. Don't make a public statement of judgment. Don't address their issues. Why? Because the verse says, when you do, you'll sound like them, lest you also be like unto them. Lest in your desire to correct a fool, you look like a fool. In your, in your responsibility, you think it's your responsibility to fix everyone's problems. You have a problem yourself. You can't leave people alone. So there are times where we make a judgment call, call people out on their sin, on their character, and there are times we don't. So having the wisdom to know when to make that call is very important, but also having the wisdom to recognize that when you do make that call, they will be returning the favor to you. They'll be watching you now on the very things you pointed out in their life. So let's move on to verse 2. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged, and with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote, the speck, that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Now, obviously, beam here being uh, such a, an exaggerated term that no one can have a beam sticking out of their eye. But I think this picture is a great literal illustration of what's going on here, that someone, oh, I see that small speck in your eye. Open your eyelash. Let me help you get it out. And yet, you know, here you are with large pieces of, of sticks and leaves sticking in your eye. And unfortunately, that's how many Christians interact with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 4, or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, 
first cast out the beam of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. All right, so verse 5 is giving us clarification. There are times when it's okay, if not necessary, to judge someone. But verse 5 also clarifies the purpose for that judgment. If you're going to judge someone, ask yourself, why? What reason do I have to make a public statement regarding someone's fill-in-the-blank? Choices, actions, character, clothing, whatever. Children, marriage. What benefit is there? I could tell you some. I have a friend who is close enough to me where when they are handling their children, and, and I've learned through experience, uh, through God's word, maybe they're younger, and I can be a help to them, I could pull them aside and say, look, I, I see how you're dealing with this matter, and let me tell you, there's a better way. Are right, you see what I did? I judged them. Like it or not, that's what I just did. By telling them the better, there's a better way, what am I telling them? You're not doing it the better way, okay? Now, they may agree or disagree, but that is what I'm doing. I am judging them, but for what purpose? Sincerely, my heart would be to help them. And say, there's a better way. Can I help you? Can I show you? Can I tell you how uh, you can handle that situation and your child can find success in the future? Now, what a, right away, what is that person going to be thinking? They might be thinking, oh, great, someone's here to help me. I'm so glad. But at some point, sooner than later, what are they going to be looking at? Well, how are your children doing? <laughs> if you're going to advise me on mine, let's take a look at yours. Rightly so. And now we're right back to the text. There are times where you're going to judge someone and say, hey, I've noticed you and your spouse, it just seems like there's some, some animosity. I can notice some friction with your spouse whenever we come over. Uh, I just noticed that, you know, four smiles. Let me tell you, I've been married 20 years. I, I haven't. I'm using an example. Someone said, you know, 20 years, been married 30 years. We've been through that. Can I help you? Can we get together over coffee, uh, woman to woman? Maybe it's two guys, man to man. I want to help you with this. Let me tell you, there's a better way. There's light at the end of this tunnel. Your marriage does not have to be like this. Can I help you? You see what you did? You judged their marriage. For what purpose? To assist them. But if you do that, what are they going to be looking at? Can you guess? Your marriage, right? If your marriage is falling apart, if you're in the middle of a divorce, you're probably not the first person they're going to go to for advice. Now, they might go to you for confirmation because they also want to divorce, so they want you to be on their side. They might be doing that, but it's not to assist them. It's to slap them on the back and say, keep going the route you're going. They just want to be enabled. But if you're going to help them make hard decisions and change, they're going to evaluate the very thing in your life that you're trying to help them change. Marriage, raising children, spiritual condition, job uh, commitment, whatever it might be. That is this text. That is what we're dealing with. But most people, verse 1, don't even get past verse 1, let alone complete it. They just say, don't judge me. The Bible says not to judge. Oh, you're missing so much truth. That is not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is cautioning you on judgment and warning you that when you do, you'll be judged in return. And if you are doing the right thing, that shouldn't scare you. You shouldn't be anxious about people evaluating your marriage if you are looking to help other people in their marriage. You should, you should embrace that and say, yes, please, take a look, not to be prideful, but to show you that I can help you. Hey, by no means are my children perfect. I'm not trying to raise them up on a pedestal to say my kids are the best. But, hey, by all means, take a look at my kids so that you can be convinced I can help you. I am not saying I'm a saint or an angel on earth. I'm not God's gift to mankind. But most definitely, yes, evaluate my character, not to say, woohoo, look at me, but to prove to you that I can help you because that is what I want. I want to help you. You know what I've noticed? Teenagers, children, adults, doesn't matter. When they are convinced that your motivation is out of love and a sincere desire to help them, I'm not going to tell you it will be easy for them to hear your judgment. I will tell you, it will be easier. It will not be so hard for them to hear your public proclamation of their struggles as long as you don't publicly state it to people who don't need to hear it. You know, me from, oh man, 
So many times I've heard from Christians who said, I've been to churches and the pastor is making these public judgments from the pulpit about people, you know, pointing them out and calling their names or say, t- you know, telling a story and looking at them while he's telling the story. I was watching a, a pastor one time. It looked like a massive church. I don't know this pastor. It was an old video. It had to have easily been 10, 20 years old. I don't even know, know this guy is still a pastor. He seemed kind of older in the video. He might even be dead by now. I don't know. But th- this guy was preaching, and all of the sudden, he went off the message and used a young man in the congregation as an illustration, not of the message. It had nothing to do with what he was preaching, but an illustration of commitment and faithfulness to the church. And he wasn't even preaching on that. For whatever reason, something triggered in his head, and he just went off. And he pointed at the guy, young man. This, the, so there's the video, and it's a large church, good video, high quality, so it's not like fuzzy. And the video follows the pastor as he points and walks up to the young man. And literally, you've got the mic on. It's like a Sunday morning message. It is not a Bible study. The place is packed. And he starts saying, you know what? Talk, you know, commitment to church. Where have you been? <laughs> he stands next to the guy, walks up to him, says, where have you been? You haven't been around. You haven't been helping and serving. And he says, you want me to marry you and your fiance? He says, I'm probably not going to do it now. I'm not interested in marrying someone who's not around and doesn't commit to the church. Like, he's not, where is that in the text? I don't know. <laughs> he's making a public judgment, proclamation, unnecessarily in front of an entire congregation of people. So even when... There's a reason to make the judgment call to help someone. The manner in which you do it may not be setting you up for success. Now, what blows my mind, first of all, is that young man took it. I mean, if I was that young man, I'd be like, you know what? Actually, I'll make it easy for you. No, thank you. <laughs> I mean, I probably would have got my fiance. He's embarrassing the guy's fiance. I would have got, hey, honey, let's go. Let's just walk out. And he talks about me on the way out. No problem. It's the last time I'll be in that church. I mean, if that's what the guy's going to do, right? It blew my mind that this young man took it. And that the older men, trustees, deacons, allow that kind of abusive behavior. But I've heard from so many people that that is a somewhat common thing, directly or indirectly, where a pastor is abusing the pulpit to deal with people on a level that needs to be personal. So what I'm trying to say here is I think a lot of people are so upset with this idea of judgment not because it's against the Bible, but because of the way in which they perceive it, the way it's been done to them, the way they've been judged. That's not in the Bible, but that's the only way they know. And they say, well, that certainly isn't biblical, and you're right. It's not that the the, the idea of judgment is wrong. The way in which it's been done is wrong, but that's the only way they've seen. So they think all types of judgment are wrong. But I really believe that if people saw it done in a biblical way, pulled aside, personal conversation, I love you. You know that I love you. Yes. All right. Let me help you. I can help you. Right? Take a look at my life. Take a look at my choices. I'm not a saint, but I've overcome. I want to help you overcome. That's Christianity right there. That's biblical judgment. That's healthy interaction. So let's not be easily offended when someone judges us in the proper way to help us. And let's make sure we are doing that to others. I cannot think of many, there are some, I cannot think of many instances where public judgment is the right way to go. The, right off the top of my head, one way is church discipline. Church discipline is when a public statement is made regarding a member living in continual, rebellious, open sin that is hurting the church, but only publicly dealt with after multiple attempts of private conversations. The Bible is very clear about that. Two to three attempts, attempts at least mentioned in the Bible, of personal, private judgment conversation. Only when the individual has no interest in changing and continues to hurt the church and abuse people, then should a public statement be made so everyone in the church recognizes this is not a healthy way to live, and this is not good what they've been doing, and and in no way does the church or God or the Word of God um, support or encourage this kind of lifestyle. 
that is something that should be done, but publicly only after privately. All right, let's move on from this idea of judgment. Christ, in another text, it commands us to, if we are going to judge, judge righteous judgment. So again, other verses deal with judgment even outside of this chapter, and other verses tell us to judge, but warn us to do so in a biblical righteous manner. Now, the next verse. You love that picture? I love that picture. That's a great picture right there. I think that uh, definitely uh, gives us the visual of what we need to see here. Verse 6, give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine. And here we got a pig dressed up with some nice jewelry. Lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. (laughs) Okay. What does rend you mean? Did you know pigs are actually pretty ferocious creatures? I saw a video, this was just a few weeks ago, of a bear, a black bear. Now, black bear are not the biggest bears. They are still, you know, they got long claws. I wouldn't want to wrestle one. But a black bear got into the cage of some swine, some adult swine. And you right away you think, wow, those poor pigs, you know, there's going to be bacon tonight. The bear gets in the cage, and almost immediately one or a couple of the pigs start charging the bear, nipping at it. The bear, like, jumps climbs back over the cage and just stares at him and kind of marches around for a good, like, two, three minutes. So it wasn't a person taking a video. It was the house camera. So no one's outside, like, with their camera. This is not a trained bear. This is, like, someone's house camera catching all of this. Wanders back and forth, and the pigs kind of, like, you know, do this number and and kind of, you know, head, like, get you from the other side of the fence. The bear considers, like, two, three minutes. You can can see the wheels turning, and he does not get back in the cage. (laughs) Uh, pigs, in fact, if you, you, you know, wild pigs, wild boar can kill a man. A pig with the tusks, like those with the sharp tusks, they'll kill you. They'll, they'll stab you. You'll bleed out. You won't survive if you get around a couple of wild boar. Uh, you better kill them before they get you. Pigs are nice, not nice, cuddly creatures unless you've just, you know, so docile, so domesticated, so fat that they can't do anything. But they're not by nature happy creatures, at least from what I've seen. And so do you love that verse where it says not only if you give the pig nice jewelry, not only will they stomp on it and, you know, do all other manner of nasty things to it, what are they going to do when they're done? (laughs) Turn around and what? Rend you. Do you know what that word rend means? Tear. They will turn around and tear you. Bite you, stomp on you, push you over, attack you. Uh, Obviously, we're not talking about domesticated pigs here that are too fat to get off their, their, their bellies. But the idea that not only do it because it's pointless, because the pearls will be trampled on anyways, but you'll be attacked when you're done. All right, so what is the truth that's being discussed here? Well, the idea of pearls is representative of truth or, or teaching or instruction, even correction. Again, remember the book of Proverbs where I told you uh, just a few minutes ago that there are times where the book of Proverbs says, don't answer a fool according to their folly, and sometimes you do because of the consequences of both sides. And so here's another consequence for not. When I was in my young 20s, I was all zeal and very little knowledge when it came to Scripture. Like, I had just recently dedicated my life to the Lord. I say dedicated, not rededicated, because I never did dedicate it up until I was about 18, 19. I was saved, but never dedicated to God. In my own heart and mind, I never said, God, I'm yours. Do with me what you will. I did that for the first time uh, a good uh, 13 years easily after my salvation as a much older man, young man. And so when I dedicated my life to the Lord, man, I was on fire for God. And I just wanted to do everything for God. And my, my knowledge of Scripture was limited, so my actions were mostly based off of assumptions <laughs> of what I thought God wanted me to do, who I thought God wanted me to be. And so, boy, I was all gung-ho to the point where I really felt, as a young man, I felt very strongly that if anyone around me swears, it was my Christian responsibility to correct them, even if I didn't know them. I was correcting strangers and said, you, you should use better words. I'm a, like, 19-year-old man. They're like, what, what world did you walk out of? Like, I don't even know you, man. I'm a 20-year-old man correcting strangers on, their, on their, uh, what they say. <laughs> but I really felt like if I don't, God will not be happy with me. Like, I need to correct them. It was not because I felt I was better than them. 
I was so sold out to God, I was willing to embarrass myself to do what I thought God wanted me to do. But I was wrong. I thought it because I assumed it. And I assumed it because I did not know this book well enough yet. But I was as zealous as a man could be. You could say, my actions were growing louder and stronger than my knowledge. And I hurt a lot of people. Not intentionally, but I did. I was given the position of floor leader at my college. And a floor leader was someone whose job it was to ensure that the students were doing what they should, following the rules. And so with that kind of attitude of all zeal, no knowledge, I just believed that I should deal with everyone's problems every time. Literally, I, when I was still there, guys had to wear ties. Now, that has since changed. And their top button had to be buttoned up. And if it wasn't, they could potentially receive a demerit and definitely had to button up their top button and pull their tie up. Also, a young man could not have phrase at the bottom of his pants. So sometimes you walk around and your pants cut under your shoes and you, you step on them. And these college guys aren't buying new pants every day. And a lot of them liked them long and baggy. And so the bottom of their pants were frayed. I wasn't looking for it. But if you've been around me long enough, you know I'm pretty good at catching stuff. And I don't even want to catch it. I'll walk into a room and see things right off the bat that the teacher hasn't seen all day. Not because they're horrible teachers. I just, you call it a gift, you call it a curse. It's probably both. I see like everything. And so when I was a young man and believed that it was my job to call people out, not because I hated them, I just thought it's what God would want me to do, I literally would walk across the street to go tell someone to button their top collar. I would walk across the lunchroom, and this is a college cafeteria, it's not a small building, it's not a small room. I would walk 100 yards across a large cafeteria to tell someone, your pants are frayed. Give me your name and ID number. I'm going to write you up. Don't wear them again. I was writing people up, which means I was confronting people, upwards to 20 times a day. I had friends who didn't write 20 demerits in a year, and I was doing 20 a day. Now, there's a whole story behind that, and again, my heart was in the right place. It just had no knowledge. I really wanted to be the best floor leader I could. I really wanted to do what God wanted me to do. I wanted to fulfill my job. I felt I had an obligation, but I had no knowledge. And so my, my lack of knowledge paired with authority was a bad situation for a lot of people. Got to the point I was called a Nazi. I was called the Nazi floor leader. Got to the point where my own brother, who went to college with me, stopped hanging around me. He didn't want to be seen around me. I'll never forget that I was on one side of the street and walking to, to a class. My brother was coming this way. He hadn't talked to me for months. He would avoid me. I mean, there's only like 500,000 of us on campus. It's, you got to literally avoid someone to not see them when you're related. Walking this way, he crossed the street and kept walking on the opposite sidewalk. <laughs> I mean, obviously that wasn't good, but I can see why he did. My point is this. I was casting, you might say, pearls before swine. I was trying to correct everyone because I thought it was my Christian duty to help them be better people, <laughs> to help them uh, wear nicer clothes and to button the top of their collar because that's what the college's rule was. And not only did I think it was my Christian duty, now I was paid to do it. And I thought that if I didn't do it, I would be wrong. And I don't think I liked it. I hated it. In fact, and to be transparent with you, there were nights, I'm, I'm a 20-year-old man, nights where I'm crying myself to sleep. I had no friends. Everyone hated me. My own brother didn't want to talk to me. That was not an enjoyable time of my life. And that's what, by the way, a lack of knowledge will do to you. It will put you in positions, put you in situations where you're doing things you think are right, but you shouldn't be doing. And then all it will do is destroy you and your friendships, which is why God's word tells us when we have knowledge how to have a balanced relationship so we're not doing that. So I, I was friendless, brotherless even for a time. He talks to me now. We're good friends now, but not at that time. And God's word warned me. I just didn't see it. 
Casting your pearls is casting truth, casting correction. But there are some people who just aren't going to hear it. No matter what your intentions are, good or bad, they're not going to receive it. And not only will they stomp on your correction and redirection and truth, they're going to turn around and bite you. And boy, did I get bitten a lot. Two years. After the first year of floor leading, I was a junior, literally begged God, God, please, please don't make me do this again. And you say, Pastor, as God didn't make you. No, but in my heart, I believed God wanted me to as much as I didn't want to be a floor leader. In my heart, I, I believed he did. I will tell you this. Unfortunately for hundreds of students, I was a floor leader for two years. But boy, did I learn a lot about myself the hard way. I learned a lot about people the hard way. Friendships, authority, discipline the hard way. Oh, boy. My philosophy of discipline is like as opposite as it could be now from what it was at 20. You know why? Because I tried it the other way, and that wasn't working. So you know what's great? Whatever damage I did, I did to a bunch of college guys who got over it and hated me, so whatever, we never saw each other again. I didn't do that damage to teenagers as a youth pastor. I didn't do that damage to students at a Christian school. I had already learned that lesson. So although I would never, ever wish that upon anyone, I would never want to go back to those two years of my life. I'm glad if it was had to happen, I'm glad it happened then with people who could take it and forget me and hate me and move on and never see me again rather than families and children. I am so glad that I learned the hard way. My, my goal is to help you not have to learn the hard way. There is a better way to help people. And sometimes recognizing you can't help them. That's the better way. Not everyone can be helped, guys. I know that's hard for some of us to accept. It's hard for some of us to believe. Oh, anyone can be helped. No. No, because help, the idea of help requires someone to want to be helped. And that I did not understand when I was younger. Help doesn't mean do. Help means assist. And assist means they're part of the process. If they're not part of the process, you can't help them. You can only do for them. And doing for them isn't helping them. It's doing for them. It's not the same thing. I want to help people, which means I can only help people who want to be helped and who are part of the process. I believe that now. I know that now, which means, as a principal, there are times at a Christian school where I recognize, as, although it breaks my heart, there's some students that cannot be helped. Not because they're past redemption, not because they're doomed to self-destruction, but at this point in their life, they don't want to be part of any process of self-success. And therefore, I and this school cannot help them. And then if their behavior affects the school and I cannot help them, the choice is obvious to me. This is not the school for them. Someone's got to make those hard choices. But when a leader fails to recognize this important truth about the swine, and they keep casting their pearls and their truth at everyone, thinking that everyone can be helped by them, all they're going to do is allow pigs to run the pen and chomp on people. That's what's going to happen. A lot of ministries falling apart because pastors can't recognize some people can't be helped, at least right now. They cannot be helped by this ministry at this time. They need to be let go until they're ready to be helped. And let go so they don't chomp on people for the next five years until they are ready to be helped. You know, the hardest decisions, though, is when a parent has to come to that conclusion. I'm not saying a five-year-old, eight-year-old, because we have responsibilities to our five-year-olds or eight-year-olds, but I am saying 18-year-olds and 25-year-olds. Oh, boy, it's hard for parents of adult children to come to that conclusion I'm casting my pearls before swine. Not only are they stomping on the truth and the, the redirection, they're turning around and biting me in the back along the way. You have no obligation to let your adult children stomp on your truth and bite you. 
Well, I'm their parent. Yeah, I get that, and I'm sure it's heartbreaking. But remember, they're doing a lot of damage to you and the remaining children in your home. So this is an important truth here. Moving on. Verse 7. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. He that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If then, being evil, you being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Therefore, all things ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law of the prophets. All right, verse 12 we'll discuss in a little bit. Let's talk about up to verse 11. The door. Again, another verse taken out of context. You know a lot of God's Sermon on the Mount, Christ's Sermon on the Mount, is taken out of context. This idea of if you ask it, it's like God's guaranteeing to give it to you. Oh, it's the open door. I mean, if you ask, you will receive. God's a good God. God's going to give you whatever you want. Again, I encourage you to take the Sermon on the Mount and compare it to other texts in the Bible. And Christ gives us a model prayer in the previous chapter that we saw. God gives us in other chapters, other books, uh, the truths like ask according to God's will. And, and those who ask, uh, we're told in the book of Proverbs that the prayer of the wicked is an abomination. So just because you ask it doesn't mean you'll get it. Because if you're living a wicked, rebellious life, God's not going to give you what you want. We're also told uh, in other books, uh, ref- another book referring to the, 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 those who are ill, that in the book of James, if you are ill, what do you do? Go to spiritual leaders in the church and have them ask on your behalf because we're told the prayer, the fervent, sincere prayer of a righteous individual avails much, accomplishes much. So there are other prerequisites for a successful prayer life, you might say. There are other guidelines that we have to, to follow for God to respond in, a, in, in the way we desire to prayer. Uh, but this is a great truth, and that is God is listening, and God desires to respond to your prayer. God wants to pour out blessings. I believe that with all my heart. God wants to bless his children. You know why? First of all, because Scripture tells us so. Number two, because I'm a dad. And I get it. I, I would do anything for my children. I have done a lot of things for my children. And I will do more for them for no other reason than that they're mine. It's not because... Well, my kids are the smartest children, so therefore I will do anything. My kids are the most talented, therefore I will do anything. Best looking, therefore I will do anything. Those aren't the reasons because they're not necessarily true. (laughs) The reasons are they're mine. That's enough for me. My kids could be dumb as rocks, and I'll give them whatever I can. My kids could be the ugliest children uh, in the United States, and I will do whatever I can because I love them, because they're mine. My kids could have absolutely no athletic music ability, and I will give them whatever I can because they are mine. And that's what this text is referring to. If evil men can give their children good things because the children belong to those evil men, how much more will a good father do so for his children? That's the truth we should walk away with here. Not that God is a genie in a bottle. Not that God will respond to every request with a yes but that God wants to respond, and I believe with a yes. But fortunately for you and for me, God knows more than we do. God knows what we need more than we do. God sees the future, and we don't. God has a plan, even when ours isn't matching his. And so with God's infinite wisdom, infinite knowledge, infinite presence throughout the world, infinite planning, my desire is that God's desire for me is what he gives me, not my desire for me. And that's the safest place to be in your prayer life. Not to say 
There haven't been times where I've prayed, God, I, this has nothing to do with the spiritual success of me or my family. It's just a request that I have. Can you give it to me? Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. And there's nothing wrong with those prayers because I do believe, again, God wants to give you good things. I believe that. I'm not teaching prosperity gospel. I'm not telling you that if you're a good person, you'll get whatever you want. I'm not telling you that if you give to others, God will re- give back to you tenfold. I'm not saying that. I am telling you God is a good father, and all good fathers want to give their children good things. That's what I'm saying. And this text of the open door is referring to God is essentially saying, as a good father, I want to open the door to you. If you knock, I'm letting you in because I'm a good father. I'm going to listen to you because I'm a good father. And I'm going to bless you as a good father as long as there's not reason to keep my blessing from you. Rebellion, blasphemy, wickedness, whatever it might be, God says, look, I want to bless you. What a great truth. And then the golden rule. You ever heard it said, the golden rule is not in the Bible? I've heard that said. I've heard it written. I read a book. Read many books, and I've read, I remember reading an occasion a book stating the golden rule. It's often said the golden rule is in the Bible, but it's not. And I got to thinking, really? It's not? I always thought it was. So I searched scripture and said, it's, it's right there. Why, how could they say it's not in the Bible? Maybe the exact phrase, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that exact wording is not in the Bible. But I mean, it's pretty close. Because what do we read here? Verse 12, therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. I mean, you can't really get much closer than that, especially in 1600s old English. That's about as close as you can get. There's the golden rule. The golden rule is God's rule. He says it's the law and the prophets, meaning essentially you look at the prophets, you look at the law, and it culminates in this, treat others with love. It's not the first time Christ says this. won't be the last time Christ says some form of this truth where Christ says love is the culmination of everything. And that's what we're talking about. The golden rule is just the action of love towards others, not selfish love, not conditional love, but kind, compassionate, unconditional love. That is all of the law wrapped up into one phrase, the golden rule. And we as Christians ought to display it constantly to everyone in our life. Now, we get into another very famous passage of Scripture, verse 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate. Straight, not windy, not going off in odd directions. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. If you are lost, you are more likely to take the well-traveled, broad path. Why? Because human nature assumes that if I'm lost and I don't know where I'm going, I better find the path that most people traveled. I'm going to assume they knew what they were doing, they knew where they were going, and I'll find my way out. You know, if you are lost in the woods, that's probably actually a very great piece of advice. You're probably good taking that advice. Not so good when it comes to spiritual decisions. Not so good when it comes to emotional decisions. Because uh, just because the path is well-worn doesn't mean it's the right path. It just means it's a path a lot of people take. Just because the branches have been cleared off and the trees have been cut down and the the path has been broadened to allow for a lot of uh, foot traffic doesn't mean it's the right path. It just means it's the most well-worn path, the most taken path. And if you've had any interaction with people, you have seen most people don't make the best emotional choices. Most people don't make the best spiritual choices, which means most people are taking the wrong path, which is exactly what Christ is saying here. And because most people are taking this path, it's the widest path, metaphorically speaking. It's the path that people think makes the most sense to follow because everyone else is doing it. You know what they're not doing? They're not looking at where the path is going. They're just looking at who's on the path. Wow. Hundreds of thousands, millions of people taking that path. 20 people taking this one, okay, I'm going with the millions. I mean, unless you just, like, have a rebel spirit within you, that's what you're going to do. A lot of people raising kids, 
don't know what to do, so they read a book, bestseller. Millions of people are reading this book. This must be the right book. It has the most foot traffic. It's on the shelf in front of Barnes & Noble. It's literally at the front door on the window as you come in. This must have all the answers because everyone's reading it. That's the broad path. They read the book. They apply everything in the book to their children, and they say, this is all going to work. It's going to work. They keep convincing themselves it's going to work. Only after five, seven years of realizing it didn't work, it's too late now. You know what you should have done? You should have looked at the author of the book and said, how are their kids doing? Well, they don't have kids. Okay, that's enough for me. Put this book back. <laughs> oh, they got kids. How are they doing? Oh, their kids hate them. All right, that's enough for me. Don't need to read that book. By the way, same can be applied to a pastor. A pastor is preaching from the pulpit on how, they, how you ought to raise your children. And after the service, you see the pastor's son going kicking old people in the shins. Maybe that's not the person you should look to for direction on how to raise children. Which is why 1 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that a pastor must, not ought, must be able to raise their own family in a successful way or they are not eligible to be a pastor. Why? Because 1 Timothy chapter 3 states, if you can't raise your own family, rule your own house well, how can you rule, train, raise a generation of young believers in the church? You can't. If you failed literally with your own flesh and blood, then don't fail with God's people on a larger scale. And yet, how many pastors are preaching this very night and their family is running amok. Marriage is on the brink of divorce. Children all running from God. Children running from parents. Children causing havoc in the church at the Christian school that they go to. And yet people say, but the pastor's such a lovely man. Sure. Doesn't mean he's fit to lead. How many horrible leaders have been given opportunities because of that statement? She's such a lovely person. He's such a lovely man. Of course he can be mayor, governor, senator, president. Such a lovely person. More bad leaders have been given authority because they're lovely people. Na naturally nice people, good-natured, quick to smile. The kind of person you would enjoy having lunch with. But would you enjoy having lunch with their children? Probably not. Find a new leader. Especially if the leader's job is to help you with children. Find a new leader. And just go to lunch with them. But don't let them lead you. 1 Timothy chapter 3, literally. I'm not making it up. And so here we have people taking the broad path but not looking at the end game. <laughs> All right, I see a lot of people here. Must be great. I don't care where they're going. I just see a lot of people. So that, to me, is evidence this is a good path. Could it be all these people are deceived? Could it be all of them are saying the same thing like sheep? Oh, there's so many going this way. I'll just join along. Have you ever done that experiment? I have on multiple occasions. I have... Uh, examined people and what direction they're going, literally what direction they're walking, um, going the wrong direction. I'm thinking you're literally not going the right way, but they're just going that way because everyone else is, right? You're in a big group of people. I've done this before, been in this, in this kind of situation. Let's say a church mission trip. And so you're at the airport. Okay, where are we going? Well, one person says, I know where to go, so let's go. And you follow them. Everyone follows them, and no one asks questions. You get there, and the person says, oh, this isn't the right way. Uh, follow me. I know where to go. And everyone follows that person. And you follow them all over the airport. I've been there, literally been there, where I've seen that and thought, man, people are just sheep. Like, there's no critical thinking. There's no, can we just stop and ask someone who actually knows? No, this person says they know. Let's just follow them. Right? You, you've seen that? Yeah, I'm sure you have. In a business sense, right, with businesses, oh, I know how to fix this problem. Sure, everyone's on board. Woo! And then next week, well, that was a bad decision. Don't worry. I can fix this. Aren't you the one that got us into this problem? Yes, but I can fix it. Okay, go ahead. And then we're all back to where we were before. The broad path, guys. I would stay away from it. More often than not, it is the wrong path. The Bible says, spiritually speaking, it's definitely the wrong path. Spiritually, 
the larger crowds and their spiritual choices are the ones you stay away from. The narrow path, the few, they're the ones that got it right. Now, to our second highly uh, misinterpreted text, and ironically in the same chapter. I said the first one of judgment is one of the top ones. This one is right up there. Very close. Are you ready for this? You ever heard uh, verse 16? Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Verse 20, are you ready? Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. You heard that verse? Verses, I have. And you know, you know, you know how it's been referenced? The preacher talking about you. Saying, you know, in time, we'll figure out who the real Christians are. We'll know you by your fruits. You keep coming to church, hey, you're the real deal. You don't come to church, ah, yeah, the fruit's going to tell. You're not a real Christian. Knew it all along. I saw it coming. I saw the weak fruit there. And, hey, I went in my biblical rights to judge you by your fruits because I'm going to actually preach this text and make you feel bad about the fact that your fruit isn't strong enough and flourishing enough and tasty enough for me to put my stamp of approval as a pastor that you're a real Christian. Nope, keep trying till that fruit's a little juicier. Keep trying till that fruit, till there's more of it than just one apple on the tree. You're still a young little sapling. I need more fruit before you prove to me, the pastor, that you're the real deal. You know where these pastors fail at when preaching this text? Verse 15, this is where they fail. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing. Because this text isn't talking about the members of the church. You know who he was talking about? The leaders of the church. It is the church who should say about the pastor, not seeing the fruit that we desire. Time for you to move on. Uh, Not seeing healthy fruit. A lot of it, but a lot of rotten fruit. You're fired. Yeah, you got fruit, and it's tasty, but I'm only seeing like two. I mean, I I appreciate the effort, but if you want to lead a church of people, you got to have more fruit than two apples on the tree to lead God's people. Why don't you take a step back, grow, and then when you've grown and when there's more fruit, then come back. That's the church telling the pastor, not the pastor telling the church. I'm curious, have any of you, aside from this church, have any of you heard this text preached in that way of, no, hold on, of, it is the church's responsibility to judge the pastor's fruit. Have you heard it preached that way? One, I'm actually shocked. Two, you've heard it. Great. I am so glad. That actually makes me happy. But most of you know that's unfortunate because most of you have heard it taken out of context by the very men who claim to know truth. And women who claim to know scripture and who claim to be able to give it to you in a proper way. Well, right away, I can tell you, if they're not getting this right, it's not because they don't know. Because verse 15 is pretty clear and it's attached to the rest. So if they're not preaching verse 15 and this in the proper way, they are choosing to not preach it the right way. They are choosing to misuse scripture to control you. And these very people would say, how dare you ever point out my faults? How dare you ever question me? I'm the pastor. You don't question the pastor. This is the pastor's wife, Hands off. And yet that next Sunday they will preach this passage and leave out verse 15. They are not only taking this passage out of Scripture. They are not only ignoring the proper context. They are literally controlling you and manipulating you to do the very opposite of what Christ 
during his Sermon on the Mount, commanded us to do. It is your responsibility for you and your children to ensure that I, my wife, the other pastors, and their wives are not predators. That's your job. Because a predator won't do that for you. You understand that, right? There's a lot of predators. The Bible says wolves in sheep clothing. They're not going to tell you they're wolves. It's your job to be smart enough to see it. The problem with predators is if you've been trained by one, you're not trained to know what they look like. If you've been raised by a predator in any way, spiritually raised, teacher, pastor, Sunday school, whatever. If you've been raised physically, you know, parent, uncle, by a predator, you're going to be so confused, you won't know. You've been blinded to what it looks like. Now, some of you are experiencing the emotional pain of what the predator did in your life. You just didn't know why you had it. I'm telling you now, predators bite, right? They have sharp teeth, and they will hurt you. And that's one way you know there's a predator in your life. They constantly hurt you. And not the good kind of hurt like, hey, you're making some mistakes, but let me help you. Oh, that hurts, but thank you. Not that kind of hurt like, you're no good. Get with the program or get out. I'm in charge. Don't question me. It's my job to question everything you do. Don't you dare come into my house and question me. That's all. That's a predator. Emotionally, spiritually, sexually, man, they're everywhere, guys. And a lot of them are pastors. And a lot of them are deacons. And a lot of them are trustees. And a lot of them are teachers. And a lot of them are people who call themselves Christians. And the Bible warns us of these people. These people, by the way, predators also, they're not happy being docile and domesticated. Predators want to rule. They want to run into the coop and go after the innocent. Predators often don't travel often in large packs. And when they do, there's a pecking order, all right? Because predators are all about the biggest and the strongest wins. Predators don't choose the wisest among them. Predators don't choose the, the, the one with the best ability. Predators choose the strongest. It's a, it's a contest of, of masculinity. It's a contest of strength. Another red flag of predators. If the leaders over you are all about, well, who's the strongest rather than who can really help us through this? Who's the wisest? Who's the best equipped? It's always about who's the strongest. I'm the strongest. You, you're, in a, you're in a room full of predators. Get out. And definitely don't let them lead you. Christ warned us. You have yourself to blame if you let predators lead you. I do put blame on the predators because I get it. They've deceived you. They tricked you. But it's not like this verse wasn't here for you. You chose not to read it. Which, by the way, final thing about predators, they don't want you to know anything that they haven't told you. Knowledge outside of what they've taught you is forbidden. Anathema. How can they keep you from learning outside of what they taught you? They will tell you that anything that disagrees with them is a cult. Anything Anyone that thinks or does anything different from them is wicked and ungodly. Blasphemous of the devil. Now, wait a second. Where have you heard those phrases before? Oh, yeah. It was the Pharisees who said that about Christ. You know why? Because they were predators in positions of spiritual leadership. And Christ was teaching truth that disagreed with them. And so they said, he's of the devil. Predators have been, been doing the same thing for thousands of years. Do your research. When someone is scared for you to learn something different than what they taught you, they're probably a predator. Because when you know 
they can't control you. When you're only allowed to know what they want you to know, they control everything about you. The way you dress, the way you act, what you say, where you go, what you watch, who you marry. <laughs> what? Why do you feel the responsibility to gain the pastor's approval of who you date and marry? He's not God. He's not even your father. And there are young ladies who would go to the pastor before they go to their dads for approval. What are you doing? How unhealthy, even creepy is that? This man is in some way the father to all the women in the church. That's just like, if that's not predator, I don't know what is. It's nasty, right? It creeps you out to think about it. But when you're in that, you don't know it. That's all you know. You're so used to predators you don't know what they look like. Christ warns you, don't let predators rule over you. And it is your job to evaluate their fruit, and when their fruit doesn't match this book, kick them out. Get rid of them. And don't let the predator turn you into the predator and make themselves the victim. Oh, the wolf lying by the sheep. Oh, the sheep kicked me. Oh, and all the other sheep. You bad sheep kicking the sheep in this wolf. Oh, the wolf is so mean. Oh, they, they hurt my arm. And all the sheep attacked their own because the predator made the sheep the predator. So the predator can keep doing what they've all always been doing, eating their own. And now... Let's move on to verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And he will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Are you scared that this might be you? Are you scared you'll get to heaven and Christ will say, you're not welcome here. Go to hell. Literally, that's, you know, you depart from me, you're going to hell, right? God's saying that to you. Has it ever concerned you that that might be God's response to you? Because he's doing that. And these people, by the way, have you noticed? These people are shocked. These people are shocked to be in heaven and told they're going to hell. Wow. If these people are shocked, it seems like they're pretty religious. They said, we've done all these things. Have we not prophesied in your name? Not only done these things, but done these things in your name. These religious people are shocked that they're not going to heaven. Then has it scared you that you might be one of them? Let me clear up any concerns for you. When these people get to heaven, God says, I never knew you. What is their response? But look at all the things we did. They think they're going to heaven because of what they did. And God says, not happening here. So you should be concerned if you think you're going to heaven because of what you do. Then, yes, you are part of this group. This is going to be you. But if you get to heaven and said, I did nothing to get here. Christ did it for me. And I'm only here because I trusted at what Christ did for me, Christ's answer will be, enter in, good and faithful servant. So you have to decide, what kind of religious person will you be? Someone trying to earn your way to heaven by what you do? Well, you're going to be sorely displeased when you die. Or a religious person who is going to heaven because of what Christ does, did for you, and does what you do because you love him, not to go to heaven. You're going to heaven because of what Christ did, and you're doing what you do because you love God. That's why these individuals have eternal judgment. They think their works are enough to get them to heaven. And then finally, this famous text of the, you might say, parable of the house on the rocks and the house on the sand. Verse 24, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. 
And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. All right, quickly, two types of houses, the one who breaks and the one who doesn't. Both experience trouble, which I want to point out. Being a Christian doesn't mean you won't have trouble. You'll have trouble. The wind's going to come. The, wind, the rain's going to beat down. The water's going to rise. There's going to be issues in your life, sorrow, pain, destruction. It's going to happen. The question is, will it destroy you? You say, well, what if I walk away from God? Will I eliminate all the potential pain? No, the, the unsaved have pain too. <laughs> Those that don't go to church, they got destruction too. Both sides, everyone has it because we live in a hurtful, chaotic world. The question is, will you survive it? Survival is not going to be due to your inner strength. Well, I'm just really strong-willed. I'll make it. Well, you might live through it. doesn't mean you'll make it. The house that survives is the one that two things, hears the word of God and follows the word of God. It's not enough to know scripture. A lot of Christians who read the Bible, a lot of Christians who read the Bible to their children and are shocked to find out that their marriage and their family is falling apart. But we read the Bible every day. Well, reading, it's not enough. We went to church and we heard preaching every week. Well, hearing is not enough. My kids go to a Christian school. Five days out of the week, they have Bible class. Hearing it again, not enough. True success is following. Now, you got to know it to follow it. So there has to be some hearing because if you don't know, if you don't hear, you don't follow. But hearing is only step one of success. True success is two steps, hearing and following, hearing and applying, which requires that dirty word, change, requires change. Because once we hear God's truth, we're going to be convicted that we weren't following it. And now you have to make some changes to redirect and follow the truth that God gave you. When you do that, I don't guarantee you, God, better guarantee than Russ can ever give you, God's personal guarantee, your house won't fall. Oh, yeah, there'll be rains, there'll be wind, the water will rise, it's going to get wet, it's going to get rainy, it's going to get loud, it's going to get chaotic, but your house, your house is representative of your life, of, of yourself, that won't fall. Not only will you survive, you'll thrive. And a house during a storm is a place of refuge, a place of protection. Not only will you thrive, you, during chaos, can be a place of protection for others. But no one wants to be in a house falling down. No one wants to be near a house falling down. That's a dangerous place to be. And if you know God's word and aren't following it, you're only causing a danger to the people around you, not a place of protection. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your people. Thank you for the chance to see your word again tonight. And I pray that we would be the house on the rock, knowing and following your word. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned before, there is no Bible study next week. We have our business meeting. So we'll take our week off, and we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you.